Our Father and our God, we understand that the, the very heartbeat of a relationship with you through Christ is that which is summarized in that very misunderstood word, love. It's not that we are called to have um, positive emotional experiences. It's that we've been called to love. That what Jesus Christ did for us is not feel good about us, but he loved us. That the Father loved us so that he didn't express some kind of fond wishes, but he sent his Son to die in our place. That the very heartbeat and essence of love is sacrifice. The willingness to give, the willingness to set aside that which is important to us so that we can express love to another. Father, it is the very essence of our relationship with you that we fall in love more and more deeply with the God who made us and the God who redeemed us in Christ Jesus. By the a fresh unctioning of your Holy Spirit, grant that it be so. Grant that your people will leave here today with a, with a greater sense that they're in love with you. That they love your word, not because they want to be intelligent, but they love it because it's the place where we find out about you. It's not the, the Bible that we love. We love it. Because it tells us more about the God that we love. Father, there are marriages that are standing in this room right now that have lost a sense of love. That, that relationship that is supposed to be the grandest illustration of a, of a person's relationship with Christ, marriage. Marriages suffer. Marriages have grown cool and distant, and there is a, a strangeness to the relationship. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you will have mercy on us, and that you will raise up from, a, from among us men who want to be biblical husbands as well as women who want to be biblical wives. Oh God, heal our marriages. Heal our families. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Our Father, we think of the significance of this day. There are people all over the country that are going to be standing for an hour or so just to make a visible statement against an, a, a, a piece of godless immorality that has taken hold of this land. Father, I pray that something good, something great would come out of this statement this year. We thank you for what we see, perhaps, in the elimination of the partial, abort, partial birth abortion. And pray that you will bring that to fruition. But, Father, that's just the beginning. We ask for more strides towards the elimination of the scourge. Lord, we pray for our president. He is a man besieged on all sides, and perhaps he deserves it. But, Lord... Your people long to have leadership that is righteous. Give us that in spite of who occupies the Oval Office. Grant a, a, a fresh supply of mercy and grace to the leaders of this land. Now, Father, accept our gifts. They, compared to what we have left, are very small.
but they do represent a willingness on our parts to trust you for our financial future and to express through our giving that it is more important to us to see the kingdom of Jesus Christ prosper than it is for us to have another thing. So take these gifts and use them for the glory of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them with me to the first book of Chronicles, chapter 11. And what you're about to hear is the sermon that I preached on a Wednesday night immediately upon my return from Hungary. 1 Chronicles, chapter 11. Beginning at verse 15. You follow as I read. Now three of the thirty chief men went down to the rock to David into the cave of Adullam. And the army of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Raphaim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, David would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O my God, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of these men who have put their lives in jeopardy? For at the risk of their lives they brought it. Therefore, he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. The grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of our God, that's something that endures forever. This is a little story, a little vignette out of the life of David that comes right after he has um, taken over as king of Israel. Saul has just been killed in chapter uh, 10. And in chapter 11, the people of Israel all together come to David and say, we want you to be our king. David becomes the king, and uh, he moves into Jerusalem. The Jebusites are are eliminated by military conquest. And what you get here is a description of some of the men that were closest to David, the 30 mighty men. And three of those 30 mighty men are mentioned in this little brief vignette about the water from Bethlehem. David um, is fighting the Philistines in this instance, and um, uh, the Philistines are headquartered in Bethlehem, his old, uh, his hometown. And so, perhaps in a moment of fancy, he, um, he expresses a longing. And it says he expressed with a strong, uh, with, with, with longing, Oh! Well, that's David's expression of longing. Oh, that I could drink from that well right there by the gate in my old hometown. So three of his mighty men hear that. They risk their lives, break through the perimeter of the Philistine army. They get the water and bring it back to David. 
David, as you see, pours it out. He wouldn't dare drink it because he says, I'm not going to drink something that, that almost cost men their lives. They risk their lives. They put their lives in jeopardy for me. And I'm not going to treat that. I'm not going to treat that um, in, a, in a way that it doesn't recognize its great worth. Now, here's the point, ladies and gentlemen. Here's the point of this story. And here's the point that I would like to make with you today. If you're going to be close to the heart of the king, it's going to require some risk, some danger, some putting one's life in jeopardy. If you're going to be one of David's mighty men, you're going to have to risk some. So if you're going to be a part, if you're going to be close to this king, you're going to experience some risk, some danger. And ladies and gentlemen, if you're going to be close to our king, the king of kings, if you're going to be close to this Jesus of ours, it's going to involve some risk. Let me tell you how this subject all came up. Um, we, of course, were in Hungary, and there were several things that made us believe that we were really in danger. I mean, actually, I guess my wife and I could be could qualify as your consummate scaredy cats, but um, we were scared of everything. You know, we we uh, I, believe me. But um, but one of the things that really got me going was the well. First of all, the war started while we were there. And people kept asking me, are you sure you want to be out of your homeland when your country goes to war? I would say, uh, no, I'm not sure. I mean, should I be getting out of here? And, and then, of course, the State Department uh, issued a warning to all American citizens living abroad, which we heard. And then in the little church where I preach, at a little English-speaking church in Budapest where I, where I uh, filled the pulpit for 12 weeks, there was visiting the church at that time a young Palestinian he was from Janine. Has anybody ever heard of Janine? That's the place where the Israeli army was accused of uh, moral atrocity, uh, of uh, slaughter. And the United Nations did an did a, uh, investigation of uh, Israeli army actions in Janine. Well, this young Palestinian was from Janine, and he was visiting our church. And he had been there a couple, three times, and I was all excited about this, um, this, uh, this Muslim hearing the gospel and and then I ran into a missionary downtown one time, and he said to me this. He said, you know that's how they work, don't you? And I said, that's how who works? He said, terrorist. He said, they come in, they scope the place out, and then they blow it up. What? I mean, I'm, I, I, I just gave this, I'm trying, and this, uh, this missionary is saying, well, you know, that's how terrorists work. They come and blow you up. Oh, no. Well, that just gives you a little bit of the background as to why this issue first came up for Susie and me. Now, in the midst of this discussion of danger and risk and safety, and uh, you know the standard evangelical line, don't you? The standard evangelical line is this. The safest place to be is in the center of God's will. Well, why don't you tell that to Jim Elliott or Chet Bitterman or Nate Saint 
Or why don't you tell that to the two parents whose 13-year-old daughter was blown to smithereens in a terrorist attack on a bus in Haifa, Israel, in March while we were in Hungary? Why don't you tell it to the Apostle Paul? Why don't you look at the Apostle Paul and say, you know the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you that's poppycock. I can say this. The most fulfilling, the most meaningful, the most joyful, the most peaceful place to be is in the center of God's will. But it may not be the safest. That is, if you mean by safety, free from some kind of bodily harm. If that's what you mean, ladies and gentlemen, then you might want to stay out of the will of God. If that's what you're looking for. Gang, the American church is fixated on praying for our missionaries to be safe. And I want you to know the ones that we met, that we were the most impressed with, are far more concerned that you and I pray for their faithfulness as opposed to their safety. You want to pray for them? Then pray for me that I be faithful. Don't worry about my safety. Pray that I be Faithful in whatever circumstance I find myself. Now, guys, um, this whole emphasis that that occurred produced some um, some modification in how I I viewed things, and I want to tell you about it. I want to tell you about when the shift began. It began on a Sunday night. Uh, I had preached that morning and. Um, I had spoken to a man there in the church who has since become an elder of that church, and he is absolutely precious. He's with MAF, Missionary Aviation Fellowship, and um, his name's Dave Bachman, and I had mentioned to David, you know, all of my uh, uh, insecurities and fears and woes and all, and the Palestinians coming to the church, and, you know, we're at war. And, and he said, um, Jimmy, um, I've got some stuff that I'd like for you to read. Can I bring it by tonight? We said, of course, and so um, actually I was looking for any help I could get. And so sure enough, that night, um, the phone rang, and it's Dave Bachman, and he wants to bring that stuff by that he wants me to read about risk, danger, safety, that business. So um, doorbell rang, and pitch black outside and cold. It was always cold. That's a cold place. It was cold, real cold. But it was cold that night, one Sunday night. And so I opened the door, and there's Dave, and, and um, uh, we invited them in. They came in. My wife fixed tea. We sat around the dinner table and talked. Probably over two hours. And they told us their story. They had just uh, gotten to Budapest from Moscow. They had spent the previous nine years in Moscow. And uh, they had, uh, I think it was four small children. It could have been three. I think it was four small children at the time when they moved to Moscow. Moscow is a city of 12 million. Have you ever ridden a public transportation in Moscow? I haven't either. But I have ridden one, ridden one in Kiev, Ukraine. I've never seen anything like that. This was uh, probably at 1030 at night. And they, we were face to face, smashed in this subway. Well, they were in Moscow. It's worse in Moscow. And they had four kids. And, of course, the only travel was by public transportation. So they came to the place where they finally had to realize, we're just going to have to commit our kids to the Lord. Imagine that. 
throw them out on the street. That's wrongly said. But let them run to the streets of Moscow. And we'll commit them to the safekeeping and well-being of God. In the midst of all this, I also heard a story that John Piper told. You know the name John Piper? John Piper is a pastor in Minnesota, in Minneapolis. And his church is in downtown Minneapolis that has many of the same problems that any downtown has, just like Memphis is downtown. Well, his church is downtown. And uh, he, he tells this story, and at the end of it, he just bursts in this paroxysm of, of emotion. Um, he's talking about young men that they are interviewing for jobs on his staff, pastors. And, you know, they'll interview him for this job and that job and the other job. And, and he says when he, when he finally gets down to the, you know, the last interview, they always want to ask the same question. They always want to know... Do you think my children will be safe? And I wish you could hear John Piper erupt over the, over the tape. He just, whoa! You know, safety? The, the point is, ladies and gentlemen, it was the Bachmans who um, said to us things that we just didn't, we couldn't fathom. And when they left, Susie and I were a bit um, ashamed. Um, We weren't changed. We still aren't. But the change has begun. And what I want to do with you in my remaining minutes with you is I want to list for you five factors, five thoughts that have contributed to the change, the ongoing, presently ongoing change concerning this whole issue of risk and danger and safety. Five things that I hope will commence the change in you as well. One of those factors, or the first factor I want to mention, is just the pure statements of Scripture. Just some obvious statements in the Bible, and there are numerous of them, uh, but I, um, I can't read you all of them, but I would like to read you one. Uh, this is in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. You don't need to turn, just write it down. Go back this afternoon and take a look at it. Let me read you these three verses. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer. Listen, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. Perhaps you remember about 20 years ago, there were two missionaries um, in Colombia that were kidnapped by some drug warlords. And um, uh, they spent about 60, 90 days in captivity. And uh, everybody thought they were dead. Everybody thought it was the end of them. And, and while they were there, they, um, 
Uh, they, they would read the New Testament to each other in Spanish again and again and again. They just continually read the New Testament to each other. When they were finally released and they were interviewed, they said, and this is not an exact quote, but they said something like this. He, they said, the thing that jumped out at us to our surprise was the overwhelming amount of danger and suffering that was experienced by God's people in the Bible. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you. Those passages have begun to jump out at me, too. The numerous times the people of God have paid a very significant price for their following of the Master. Because, ladies and gentlemen, if you're going to be close to this king, it's going to involve some risk. That was the first factor. Here's the second factor. Or thought, whatever you want to call it. Gang, by removing eternal risk, Christ calls his people to engage in some temporal risk. Because you see, ladies and gentlemen, for the, for, for, for the Christian, the ultimate risk is gone. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The ultimate risk is gone. But I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, we love this life way too much. We live as if we don't believe that there is a heaven. But because the ultimate risk is over for us. Temporal risk is something that's to be a part of our expression of love for Jesus Christ. Here's my third thought or factor that led and contributed to this ongoing change that's still underway, by the way. My third was my utter repugnance for the message of American consumerism that has crept little by little into the church and says to the church, maximize comfort, maximize safety. Consumerism, ladies and gentlemen, is a part of our culture, but it's not supposed to be a part of my Christian experience. I want to read you something that Jeremiah said. Actually, he said one verse, God said the other one. This is Jeremiah chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. Now listen to this. Then I said, that is, Jeremiah is speaking to God. Jeremiah speaks to God. Ready? He says, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. That's a great message, isn't it? You're not going to have any problems. You're not going to have any trouble. Ah, you're going to have assured peace. That's what the prophets are saying. Verse 14 is the Lord's reply. That was Jeremiah saying that to the Lord. This is the Lord saying this to Jeremiah. And the Lord said to me. The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. 
I'm suggesting, ladies and gentlemen, that, that the health and wealth gospel is everywhere in the 21st century Western Evangelical Church. But it is totally absent from this book. And I can only promise you what this book allows me to promise you. What does this book allow me to promise you? Well, how about this? All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Or, blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness sake. I can promise you that. But I cannot promise you health and wealth and prosperity. I can't promise that. Because nowhere does this book give me permission to promise you that. Gang, um... I'm afraid that our Christian experience oftentimes gets buried underneath a pile of security and safety and, and control and, and things. Our souls are smothered under our own wealth. Many of us are having our souls choked by our own prosperity, and the devilish thing is, we call that God's blessing. Gang, we're the ones, we're the ones who have a gun in the bedside table so that we can shoot people who are trying to steal some of our stuff. That was my third That's the third contributing factor to my ongoing, present transformation, or at least in in the area of safety and risk and danger. Here's the fourth contribution. It was a comment that was made by that man right there, Jay Parker, that venerable, old, gray-headed, bow-tied saint. It was at a Wednesday night supper where Jay said, and I don't know that this is an exact quote, but it's close enough. And it says, he said something like this. My fear is not that I will live a life that's too short, but that I will live a life that's too long. Gang, I don't have a death wish. I don't have a death wish. But I'll tell you this. I'm going to do all that I can do that is available to me so that I won't die in a nursing home. Now, I understand that nursing homes are required at times. I understand that they're the only option at times. But I'm telling you, on occasion, people are dying in nursing homes. And I wonder if it's not some kind of judgment of God on us because we lust after safety and security and peace and control. Gang, I would rather burn out than rust out, wouldn't you? Maybe I will end up in a nursing home. I, I, I don't know. But I, I, I know that if I have a choice, I'm going to do all that I can to die in some kind of frontline service to Jesus Christ. People kid me about the veins that stick up on my head right here. Well, I, maybe that would be painful, ladies and gentlemen. But it would be a nice way to die. You know, I've got a friend. I've got a friend who, uh, every time he gets on an airplane, he prays that the thing will explode. 
He says, three minutes of terror and instant glory. You probably don't want to ride on an airplane with him, but... Uh, <laughs> Gang, John Piper tells a story about, about this 81-year-old man. Wait a second, I, I think it might be 78, something, somewhere in there, you know. Anywhere. He tells this story about this man who, who his, his spouse had died, and he was retired, of course, and he had a money cash flow coming in. And he, um, he heard that, you know, Muslims weren't hearing the gospel. Um, but if you went over there and preached the gospel to those Muslims, you might die. They might kill you. So he decided, what the heck? Uh, you know, I'm going over there, and I'm going to preach the gospel to these, fo- these folks. So he sold his house and all his belongings. He moved to this country to, uh, to preach the gospel. He, he went over there, got over there, preached the gospel to the Muslims, and guess what? They killed him! <laughs> they killed him! I'd much rather die like that than miss out on being next to the heart of the king because I was afraid to take any risk. I'll read you something that I thought was funny. And I don't think this subject is funny, but, so maybe I shouldn't read it. But This is out of a book entitled, God, But I'm Bored. Like some of you. It's written by a woman by the name of Eileen Guter. And she says this. You can live on bland food as to avoid an ulcer. Drink no tea or coffee or other stimulants in the name of health. Go to bed early and stay away from nightlife. Avoid all controversial subjects so as to never give an offense. Mind your own business and avoid involvement in other people's problems. Spend money only on necessities and save all you can. You can still break your neck in the bathtub and it will serve you right. I don't want to see you break your neck in the bathtub, ladies and gentlemen. But I don't want to see you die a bored life. And I tell you, many of you are stacking up money, building up some kind of portfolio so that you can live a life of safety and security. And I, for one, think that's utterly tragic. Here's my fifth um, contributing factor to my ongoing change. It was a trip that we took to Krakow, Poland. Now, you've got to understand, ladies and gentlemen, we left on a Monday morning, and we were going to leave on the next Monday to come home. Susie and I had seen enough. We, uh, we just were trying to hang on until the next Monday so we could get on a plane and come home. But the elders had asked us to visit Krakow, Poland. And had it not been the elders, I probably would have wiggled out of it some way. But there we have a missionary in Krakow, Poland that this church supports. And the elders asked me to visit Krakow, Poland. Getting up there was no easy task. There was no direct flight from Budapest. The train was uh, about 16 hours in a, in a sleeper with four of the strangers. So we decided uh, the cheapest route and the best was to rent a driver and let him drive the car that they had rented us and we'd go because I couldn't get through the border I couldn't speak the language and I didn't know the way well ladies and gentlemen he was a Latvian a precious guy who spoke who spoke pretty good English and he could do anything according to him 
Um, of course, some of the reports that we got later was that he couldn't do anything, but he could do anything. But anyway, we hired this guy to get us to Krakow, Poland. And um, I, I can't tell you how many fears that I took into that trip. What if we have a wreck? What about liability? What about uh, insurance? What about uh, uh, lawsuits? Oh, no, where are the hospitals? I don't know about doctors. Where am I going to go? And by the way, and, and, and added all to that, have you ever heard of the Tatra Mountains? Neither had I. But on April the 9th, April the 9th, it's snowing in the Tatra Mountains. Trust me, we drove through mountains in the snow to get to Krakow, Poland, and I can't tell you how consumed I was. My wife was in the back seat and couldn't look. She, she tried to sleep because she couldn't. We skidded on the road, and, and it, was, it was just awful. Anyway, we got up there, got back. And when I got back, everything was fine. Things had gone perfectly. And although I was absolutely exhausted due to the self-imposed stress, primarily, I was ashamed. I had displayed everything but trust. And so I came to this conclusion. The real work, the real work must be done in prayer. I have to cry out to God. Go, not go, do, don't do, spin, don't spin. Um, uh, Whatever it is, I have to cry out to him for his leadership. And once he said yes, or perhaps no, but once he said yes, let her rip. It's easy for me to say now. I hope I get another chance. And I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not telling you that all will be safe. I'm telling you, all will be fine. I want to conclude by three disclaimers in a story, and I'm finished. Here's disclaimer number one. I am not saying this morning that global missions is the epitome of Christian mission or in Christian involvement. Please don't hear me say that. Ladies and gentlemen, I am not talking about global missions. I am talking about kingdom living. And kingdom living is far more inclusive than just the small item of global missions. Kingdom living can be performed anywhere you are. So don't walk out of here with the conclusion that Jimmy is saying that if we're ever going to be spiritual people, we've got to be involved in that. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, that Christians have a world and life view. And the world and life view is that we are to have dominion over all that he has created. That means all of it. That means the inner city of Memphis. That means Houston High School. It means the place I work. 
It means my marriage. It means my neighborhood. And it means Krakow, Poland. Gang, don't, don't jump to that conclusion. That's not what I'm saying. I'm pleading for kingdom living. Secondly, here's my second disclaimer. Nor am I saying that there are no Christians in this congregation that aren't experiencing some degree of risk. Some of you are, and I applaud you. I, I will say this. Um, I, I want to give you just a small example. This is not big risk, but it is little risk. And um, you remember our motto now? Our church's motto, forever and ever, I'm in. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. That's our motto. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Well, you know, ladies and gentlemen, um, this week has been kind of an, an interesting one for me. Hearing all the reports of you people who housed Ukrainians. You ought to hear some of those reports. Unbelievable. Um, Dennis Wright tells a story about um, a, a supper that they had down at the Cafe Samovar that broke out into a party going on down there. The Ukrainians grabbed instruments and started, you know, singing. And it was, I mean, unbelievable experience. Well, one of the other ones that I wanted to tell you about is Jarita Duke. You know, we had trouble finding 70 homes to, to, to provide places for these Ukrainians to stay. It was hard. I don't ever want to do that again. But anyway, in the midst of, uh, I walked out of here one Sunday and I ran into Jarita Duke. And I said, Jarita, are you, um, are you keeping Ukrainians? And she said, no. <laughs> and I said, okay, you need to. And she did. But she had all these misgivings. All these misgivings about doing it. And ladies and gentlemen, let her tell you about her misgivings. And then go ask her how that experience went. Go ask her. Dare you. She would call it one of the most refreshing, delightful experiences that she has had in years. And for her children. She ventured. And she gained. Some of you didn't venture. My grief is that you didn't gain. Here's my third disclaimer. If you leave here today feeling guilty, then stop it. You missed it. Gang, guilt is not going to take you where Jesus wants to take us. Jesus offers us a life, a life that's abundant and can be lived to the fullest. And we make mud pies. Mud pies? What are you talking about, Jimmy? Well, my illusion comes from a story, uh, well, actually a quote that's contained in a C.S. Lewis book, The Weight of Glory. C.S. Lewis says this. Now listen to this, guys. This is brilliant. Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures today, fooling around with drink, with sex, with ambition. When infinite joy is offered to us, we're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea? We are far, far too easily pleased. 
That's what I'm talking about, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to miss that. Because we are fixated on playing it safe. I read a delightful book that others of you have read long before me. I read it a couple of months ago. Um, the book was entitled, If You're Going to Walk on Water, you got to Get Out of the Boat. You know the story that, you know, Jesus is walking on water and Peter's in the boat and he walks on the water. But ladies and gentlemen, you do know where Jesus is, don't you? He ain't in the boat. He's out there in the waves. If I'm going to be close to him, I'm going to have to get out of that boat. Because if you're going to be close to the heart of this king, it's going to involve some risk. Adoniram Judson is a, is a name that missiologists know. He's a famous missionary that wanted to go to India but ended up in Burma. When he got to Burma, he was almost immediately arrested. And he spent... I forget how many years, 19, 17, 11, what, you know, when it gets to be 11 years, you don't, you don't, in jail. And that whole time, he was shackled at the wrists and ankles. So much so that he developed scar tissue around both wrists and around both ankles. When he was finally released from the prison, the king of Burma made this comment. He said, I do not fear that man's message, but I do fear that man's scars. Ladies and gentlemen, you don't get those scars on the golf course. You don't get those scars by playing it safe. Gang, this is not a plea for reckless living. This is a plea. For faithful living. Because if you're going to be close to the heart of this king. It's going to require. Some risk. Don't ever forget. Nothing ventured. Nothing gained. Father, I do pray that you will work in the hearts of your people the willingness to move out in faith after they have assaulted heaven with prayer to find out what your will is to move out in faith just like these three mighty men of David's perhaps even putting their lives in jeopardy but it is that 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 the king considers so precious, so precious that he treats it with such value and such delight. And I pray, O oh God, that you would raise up a congregation of people who are done, who are absolutely finished with a life that plays it safe.
Oh God, guard us from error. We will indeed be prone to it. Guard us from foolishness and recklessness. But apart from that, O oh God, work in your people such a willingness to trust you that they launch into the deep, getting out of the boat, only to find their precious Savior awaiting them. Father, if you've led people here who have not yet met Jesus Christ, I pray that you will cause them to see that this is no morality that we're talking about here. This is no ethic that we're talking about. We're talking about a relationship with the God who has created the heavens and the earth. And that relationship is begun through faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. That there's not a piece of merit, there's not a piece of do-goodism that could ever, ever save us. The only thing that could possibly save us is this beautiful Savior. The one for whom to risk one's life is well worth it. We commit ourselves to him and do so in Jesus' name.